Welcome to Ogle of Lanagus. Conversations in Irish mythology. With the story archaeologists. Chris Thompson. And Isolde O'Gollaghan Carmody. Please go to storyarchaeology.com for articles, stories and much more. We do this for the love of it. If you'd like to help out by making a donation through the website, feel free. Answer. Questions answered by the story archaeologist Chris Thompson and Isolde Obulacon Carmody. Hello everyone. We regularly receive queries and requests for clarification and further information from listeners and readers. And while we really do try to answer all emails, we thought it might be worth recording the occasional Q&A session so we can answer some of those questions in more detail. So here we go. And also because the answers, I think, are interesting to more than just the listeners who ask the questions. I think so. They're general questions that we're still finding out new things about. Absolutely. Now, the first one we want to look at, it's the word coir. Yes. We use the word coir quite regularly in podcasts and in the articles, but we used it first because it helped describe a very important, important concept that really is a central pillar of social organisation and the expectations Mm -hmm. of early Irish societies. And it underlies a great many episodes of the mythological stories. Yeah, and what we really needed was a word that could encapsulate quite a complex concept, which is already expressed in a variety of different terms. The most familiar one is the fear flath of one. Oh, the truth of the king. The truth of the king, or the, the truth of, of nobles. And that's the idea that a king has to speak truth and make correct judgments, otherwise the crops fail and people die and there's disease and famine and bad weather in the land. It has that quality of almost supernaturalism, doesn't it? It connects with yes. the other world. It can, connects with more than what you can see. Absolutely. and well, it, every day. Yeah, and it is that supernatural connection between the actions of humans and the sort of random and the other stuff that's all around yeah yeah. it's the balance between the worlds this one and the other world yeah and if this balance is disturbed then luck and prosperity is disrupted absolutely but as well as referring to if you like the social uh, rightness of things like making judgments or speaking the truth It also shows a kind of a deep interconnectedness between the order of the natural world, which you might call a natural justice, and the order of the social world. And so it really connects the fertility of the land, the fertility of animals and people, and that if one of those things is out of balance, then Mm -hmm. they all are. It's quite a modern theme. Yeah. This keeping of the world of nature Mm. and the world of culture in balance. Absolutely. And if one... Uh, if one is out of balance with the other, then both are damaged. Exactly. Yeah, it's very much an, an ecosystem of of it humans. Really is, isn't and, it? Yeah. And of course, um, there's this was kind of important to the poets, wasn't it? It was because it was poets that were retaining, recording, and transmitting all the bases for that balance and particularly within social order and justice and making correct judgments and knowing the law. Uh, that was very much where the poets came in and 
I suppose you could also see that reflected in the work that poets did about meter and uh, rhythm. All things schemes. in balance. Yeah, that there is this sense of, you know, there is a correct brightness. meter, there's a correct yeah. way to express different things and a correct way to communicate those things. And it things. was central because if the king or any other person of status failed to uphold this state of natural justice, mm. then he or she would lose their right to, to lead or, or, or control whatever state, they'd lose their status. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And in a way, that does also speak to the issue that sometimes comes up over the blemished king, mm-hmm. you know, like when Nuada loses his arm or when the, the sort of pseudo-historical king loses an eye, that it's because of the interconnectedness between, if you like, the, mm-hmm. the person of status and the things that they are supposedly ruling over. If one is damaged, the other is as well. That would have, that would be a little less PC today. Yes, than yes. Than the ecological message. Exactly, and, and it's, not, it's not a universal by any means. Mm-hmm. It only happens in a couple of cases like that. But it, that's where the idea for it comes from, mm-hmm. is that interconnectedness. And being, the connections between being good and good looking, I'm afraid went on for a very long time. Oh, absolutely. That was, that was also a central... Um, aspect for anyone of importance and anyone with status was that they had to be gorgeous Mm -hmm. i'm afraid that didn't it it's lasted into much more modern times (laughs) but natural justice right judgment it is a broad concept now i used to try and capture the nuances of the idea back in the early days Mm. of uh, story archaeology by using the word marked Mm -hmm. now the ancient egyptians also stressed this central importance of this social state of grace as it were Mm. But of course, being ancient Egyptians, they <laughs> summed it all up with a simple pictogram, yeah. uh, a representational symbol, and they used the feather, the feather of truth. Yeah. It was so important that it was the feather of truth held by the goddess Mart, which was used to weigh the soul and mm. either save it if it was lighter than the feather of truth or balanced with the feather of truth. Mm. And otherwise, it was fed to the gobbler. It was too <laughs> heavy. So it, it was an important concept for yes. them. But I wasn't too keen on using an ancient Egyptian term to illuminate um, early Irish concepts. No, exactly. And that's why we really went looking for a term from within the Irish tradition that would express the idea for us, if you like. But what does the word actually mean and, and why did you select it? Because it was you who selected it to use. Yes, Cord, you'll often find, uh, still in modern Irish, I think, in a phrase like bacorda, it is fitting for such mm-hmm. and such. So it's usually translated as fitting or right or just like that. But most particularly, it came to be used by us in that in our special sense through the episode of the Dagda retrieving his harp from the Fovera at the end of the Battle of Maitura. And when he goes to the Favre encampment, um, he has this four-line poem to call his harp from the wall. Oh, come summer, it, come winter. Tar, 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 da, blau, tar, kor, kethakur, tar, sav, tar, gav. Bela, oh, that's the last line I can't remember, damn it. Um, mouths of harps and bags and pipes. When he's calling the harp's names, he calls it dar, da, blau, which is a oak of two meadows and then mm. he calls it Cor Kethercor uh, which is a quite tricky one it's to translate corner, yeah it? it's the the rightness of four edges or of four points mm. and then he says come summer and come winter and it seems to be that something in that harp binds up the rhythms of the natural world 
And the rhythms of society And the well. rhythms of society. And so because of that core Ketherker, the rightness of four points, that rightness of core seemed to really express yeah. what we were looking for. And especially in that context where it's the restoration of order after the Battle of Maitura. Mm. And one of, as well as the harp, of course, the Dagda's bringing back the calf, mm. the, the black the spirited black heifer who calls all of the herds of Ireland to graze. But perhaps another example of the poet putting things right mm. when they're out of balance, it could also be found in Moitura. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first ever satire. Yes, absolutely. There's Carborough's satire which brings Brescia's kingship to an end. So we're going right back to the beginning and if you like the precipitating event for the Battle of Maitura. So it's yeah. it's the thing that starts it and the thing that ends it. So it goes more or less, Once upon a time, the poet Carver came as a guest to Brecht's house. The house was small and dark, with neither fur fire, nor furniture, nor bed. Sme- sorry. Three small dry cakes were brought to him on a little dish. In the morning, he got up less than happy, and so he spoke. Without food quickly on a dish, without a cow's milk whereon a calf grows, without a man's habitation for the night, without paying a company of storytellers, let that be Brescia's condition. And destruction was on him from that hour. And that is the first satire that was made in Ireland. Absolutely. And it's also a a classic case of the fear of that we were talking about earlier, because no king can suffer a satire. Mm-hmm. The satire spoken by a poet means it is true and therefore Bresh is not a proper king and therefore... He has to go. He has to and go. And no one will take any notice of him again. Exactly. And it's interesting again there, you've got the natural world in terms of prosperity of mm. the cattle, you've got shelter yeah. and a place to live, you've got food mm. and you've also got entertainment Absolutely. and storytellers, comfort. It's more than just the basic uh, ability to live. It's the... Ability to live well. Well, um, and particularly from the point of view of Carbra, of course, because having gone to the king's house, he could expect to be paid mm-hmm. to be there. And since he's not getting paid, then obviously he's not going to be happy about that. But it does say that, you know, in order for the land and the people to prosper, you have to pay your artists. <coughs> yes, especially storytellers. <laughs> See, storytellers, without paying a company of storytellers, let that be precious condition. I'd love to tell that to a few people. Oh, yeah. And of course, it brings us to the point of how important the poet, particularly yes. the king's poet, is in this. Mm-hmm. And the importance of satire, or the effect of satire. Yes, yes, the very real effect of satire. Yes, it is part of the job of the poet. And in particular, if you like, the king's poet or the poet for the tooth, to ensure that court is maintained. Poet is a sort of first line of defence, but they're also arbiters for Mm. what is core in any given situation. Now, that leads straight on to our second topic, which is poets. Yes. The reason that I've chosen this is because any of our listeners who are familiar with Irish mythology may notice that we use the poet to cover several important roles and we do tend to avoid the titles bard or druid although they're perfectly relevant but we don't use them except in specific circumstances yes the problem with those terms especially druid is that it's gathered a great deal of fairly modern baggage (laughs) 
and that can require a lot of explaining and clarifying. But maybe today we can talk it through a bit. Yes. Now, we do talk about poets, which in Old Irish is filla, or the filly, uh, which is the plural. And at base, the, that word does mean a seer. So it does have something of, if you like, the more... Esoteric uh, Yeah, aspect. But uh, the overall training and social structure for those people was a poetic class. It's quite complex, isn't it? It's quite detailed. And maybe if we went into every term, using every term all the time, we'd constantly be trying to explain who we were talking about. But this is your chance to tell us properly. Yes. Well, I mean, for one thing, the, the term... Druy does exist within some of the stories. It does exist within some of the uh, status tracts discussing types of poet, but not. It's usually quite pejorative, and which, which will surprise some people. Mm, I think. Yeah, that the people who have that influence and who hold on to all the lore and uh, the, and the law, as well as histories and genealogies, that's a filler. Um, the poet. Which, yes, we would now translate mm. as poet. You also mentioned the term bard, and mm. there are also sort of discussions of bard within uh, the, particularly the status tracts, which give us a big insight into social structure. The difference is that a filler uh, has gone through formal training. Of Quite a long training. Between too. seven and 12 years mm. to be filler. And the distinction is that a bard has not gone through that He's training. He's the amateur. It's or an amateur. she's the amateur. Yeah, they are an, an amateur uh, poet storyteller. Mm-hmm. Whereas a filler can include more than, if you like, just creating poems and telling stories. And particularly in that seventh to twelfth year is when they would specialise in things such as law mm-hmm. and, you know, or histories. I'd like to go through some of the terminology associated, particularly with the the, all the different grades of poet, because it'll give you fun. Yeah, and it'll give you an idea of uh, how how stratified, yes, and and how much is involved in calling yourself a poet. So here's a little bit from Urquhart Nerir, which is the little primer of um, stratification, I suppose, and. Just in the Irish, Kishlir Groda Filid Ni Ansa, which is how many grades of poet are there? Not difficult. So here are the names. The highest grade of poet is the olive. Now, olive can also be the highest grade in other professional structures. It can also be used of the head nobles and so on. So it, it means basically the master. So, but when you find it on its own, it usually means master poet. The second from the top, so the, the sixth grade, if you like, is Onruth. And this is a term that we find as well within the church grades, for example, which have a similar structure um, and are very much parallel to the poetic grades. Then at number five, you get Clee, which literally means a house post. So the big kind of straight up post that is in the middle of a roundhouse that holds up the roof. One down from that, you get Kano, which is a singer. Then you get Dos, which is a bush. Then you get Mac Irwitz, which is a young composer. And finally, 
and most intriguingly, you get the fuckluck, which means speedwell. It's a small plant. And so you get this metaphor within the grades that you start off as this little, little herb flower, yeah. yeah and then you grow into a dus which is a bush and then finally you're the clee which is the whole post holding up an entire house and you do find metaphors of growth and plant life particularly around trees you do find it quite a lot within the poets and the work that they do it is metaphorical though there are also a few subgrades which are mentioned in different lists. Now, you can think of those as the ancillary workers. So when you get them in the lists of the ecclesiastical grades, the church grades, then you have the subgrades, which are people like cooks and doorkeepers and gardeners and, you know, the people who are the lay, doing the work. The lay monks, yes, yes. Yeah, who are... The lay brothers. Yes, yeah, supporting the work of a monastic community. And likewise, then you get a tarman, which is a tree stump, or blockhead. <laughs> that sounds mean. Yeah. You get the drishuk, which is usually translated as bramble hound. I like that. Which is really interesting. And that's the one that I think had a responsibility of watching the borders and We've come questioning across the terms before. Yeah. We? Yeah. Questioning incomers and visitors and making sure they are who they say. The they one are. who had to stand out in the rain. Yeah, exactly. Near the borders, yeah. away from any shelter and question all comers. Exactly. And you can be sure that's not going to be someone of a higher grade. <laughs> They've got more important things to do indoors in the warm. Um, you also get the oblera, which is a, a buffoon trickster. So, mm. you know, a, a fool, if you like, an entertainer fool. Another one of the um, lists of subgrades, it includes a bard, just a bard, which is, again, as we said, someone who hasn't qualified, but who still creates poetry. You have the quincha, which is satirist, uh, which again seems to be not quite not what the, professionals do. Not a professional, yeah. yeah. Um, so someone who who only has bad things to say, basically. And is that the modern satirist? Uh, well, no, no, that's not, not necessarily. Um, and then Fair Curda, which is a craftsman uh, or craftsperson, a man of craft, which shows that poetry was considered to be a valued skill. Mm. And you have a lot of words, like including. Uh, I think dawn itself, which can be used to mean a craft of making something. So the thing that a filla made was considered a crafted thing mm. and a thing of value and, and very concrete and very concrete. One sense. of the crafts. Yeah, absolutely. And so it should be. Yeah, yeah. Then, of course, there, there are lists which give you loads and loads and loads of subgrades of bard. And that includes noble bards and commoner bards, you know, from bard kings down to the crumb luatha, who's the crooked one by the embers. Well, that's interesting. That the, nice. the old man who tells stories and you can't fire. stop him. That's the shaggy dog <laughs> yeah, storyteller, yeah, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Really. And I like the bard king. In other yeah. words, he's not taken the time to be a poet king. Yeah. Like Mongol yeah. was. That's what makes him so special mm. because he's a fully trained poet. Yes. And a fully working king. Yes, yes. Were. Fully effective king. Yeah. But it does show that many kings could be poets could be bards uh, absolutely and people of any grade including there's a bovard you know so the a a cow, cow bard yeah you know so anyone really oh, that sounds like a country <laughs> singer <laughs> 
Okay, how yeah. far down the correct? You know, so so yeah, so there there are lots of different ones, but again, if you don't have the qualification, you're not going to get the same price for your craft, and that's mm. that's very important, and particularly in terms of honor price and mm. compensation and so on. And again, there's a nuance here about the grade and honor price for an olive. Um, that he has 350 compositions, that is 50 for each grade. He is knowledgeable in all historical learning and he is knowledgeable in the jurisprudence of Irish law. His honour price is 40 shades, which is really... Very high. Yeah, yeah. Is, is and in many ways, these top poets, these mm. top olives, they were as important in their own right as a king or a brugu. Yes, uh, because, again, a king... Top of their tree. Rig Tuath is, if you like, the olive of... The warrior. Of the noble uh, branch. The noble the, branch. The, the, yeah. the aristocratic branch. So there, there is, if you like, a... a what's the word I'm looking for? Um, comparison, no... Um, Oh, well, I was I always think of it as a like a tripod system. Got, <laughs> yeah. in, whereas mo, what we're used to nowadays is a pyramid with yes. the king at the top and the serfs at the bottom. Mm. Here you've got basically a tripod with mm. three supports. Yes. Each of them equal, and but each of them beginning at the ground and yes. going up. Yes, yes, to, to support a common good of the tooth. And all three had to be balanced or you fall off the stool. <laughs> yep. Well, if we just take the king's poet. Yes, the, the poet for a tooth. Let's have a look at the roles that the king's poet might take on. Yeah. I mean, the first one perhaps would be as counsellor, giving advice on settling arguments. Yes, but also advice on legal points, making sure that the king is abiding by the law and, you know, reminding him if he might be making a statement that is wildly inaccurate, let's say. And he probably would, I, I would imagine that the king's poet would also help the king to settle arguments between other nobles. Yes, certainly. Um, it would be the, the neutral advice, let's say. But it was more than just a legal advisor at home. Mm. Uh, the king's poet could also create and be the one to uphold treaties. Yes, and in particular because the poet was able to cross borders and still maintain their legal status in foreign Tuatha. So they were very, very important as, if you like, ambassadors representing their people and negotiators when you're creating the gorgeous, the friendship between different Tuatha. Well, the king and the warrior could not just cross a border. That order had to be arranged and fenced round with all sorts of... Uh... Exchanges of hostages and trying not to declare war. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas the poet, and over and over again, the poet's staff is mentioned, that he carries his staff as a symbol of his training and authority. And yes. with that, he crosses the boundaries. Yes, that seems to be certainly one of the ways that he would have been recognised in a foreign tooth as someone who still has their status. And I would imagine that they've also been tested by the drishuk of the foreign tooth as they cross over in the no man's land. To make sure that they can do what they say yeah. they're going to do. As we know later on in post-Norman times mm. when they forgot uh, forgot about the importance of poets, as it were. Yes. That's why our modern wizards carry staffs. Yes, yes. To this day, you see mm. Gandalf and yeah. Saruman with their staff, and yeah. that's the staff of power. Mm. When actually it was the staff of qualification and authority. Yes, yes. A, a recognisable symbol. I find that very interesting mm. that the symbol has continued yes. right down to the current day of yeah. the poet's staff, which allows him to go where he will. Yeah. 
And of course, it, the, he was more than that. What about his deep knowledge of Dinhianicus and genealogy? Didn't that make him the archivist for his people? Absolutely. Holding the histories, you know, both of the place and the people's relationships to the place, but also knowing and remembering everybody's ancestral lines so that there was clarity about who was who and who had lived where and for how long. Mm. But also, if you like... And field belonged to who? Absolutely, yeah. But also the kind of the legendary or mythologised rights that people would have to be on that piece of land because their mythological ancestor figure was the one who planted that particular tree or built that mound. Yeah, Yeah. all of that, holding the memory of the community within the Dinhenicus poems, within the genealogical lists and within the actual Dinhenicus stories. People in an oral society... Mm. They would have expected this, mm. but it's still something of a feat of memory. Oh, it is. It takes a lot of practice. It, it takes a great deal of training and it mm. takes years. Uh, that uh, piece that I read out earlier about having 50 compositions mm. for each grade, each year that you've been training as a poet, that there were also other parts of curriculum that you had to learn mm. and accumulate over the years. Mm. And that was a large part of your training. But I even find that teachers will come to me and say, how do you remember the story?" I know, yeah. And it is actually, once you've done it for a while, mm. they break down into sections, you know mm. the blocks, you know how it works. They never come out exactly the same, but they all fit together. Well, people also ask, if you ever say that you're an actor, people go, oh, how do you remember all your lines? And you, my answer is usually, I don't remember lines, I know the play. That's right, and you know the story. Exactly. And you don't know one story. If you know one, you can know ten. If exactly. you know ten, you can know fifty. Yeah, yeah. I do understand how mm. it works, mm. but uh, yeah, it does take training. Yes. Now... Our king's poet also had to be a herald and a reporter of deeds. Yes. And he was the newspaper, or she was yes, the newspaper of as, the time as well. As we've discussed in particular with relationship to the Morrigan and her role within Mark Turret and her position as the poet, the archetype of the poet, that she's heralding, she's watching, she's recording. And that's really laying down a future history. Mm. But that's where things like knowing all of the different meters comes into it. Because, as I'm fond of quoting, a poem is a machine for remembering itself. Mm -hmm. And the structure is part of what fits it into your brain and lodges it there. Mm. So by making a report of deeds in a poetic form, you are crystallizing it quite literally, Mm. giving it a structure that means it will repeat and remember itself it's for true. the future. In whether it's poetry or mm. whether it's stories, mm-hmm. having them in a certain rhythm, mm-hmm. having the balance, the words balancing, yeah. you're creating a picture of words, mm. and a good composition yes. is easier to remember than a bad one. Absolutely, and yeah, that's why I love that machine for remembering yeah. itself is a it's perfect description. Absolutely true. Yeah, and there there are just pleasing patterns that we latch onto as humans, mm. and they are easier to remember. They are. Now, another thing, of course, connects with that that poetry is mm. the creating of praise poems. Oh, yes. It was a very important way of improving status for people, wasn't it? Yes, but also improving or maintaining status because while 
early Irish society was very stratified. It wasn't static. Mm. It was possible for your status to change, or to be more precise, it's possible for your grandchildren's status to change, depending on your actions, your acquisitions, and then the intervening generation not squandering it all. Mm. And so if you have praise poems to your grandparents, then that's part of what gives you social mobility. Mm -hmm. And of course it could work the other way. Yes. Oh yes. And when we were talking about Carbola's satire earlier, what's important to remember is that a a poet can create satires. It doesn't mean that they get called a satirist. Mm -hmm. A satirist is someone and that's all they do. When a poet is creating a satire, they are undertaking a very carefully structured legal procedure against somebody who has you know offended against them mm-hmm. essentially it has rules in how it's done too absolutely it? because an illegal satire is really bad news you you can't be called a filler if you are creating illegal that, well, satire that, there's a backlash to that yes isn't it? exactly and that's basically like libel or slander mm-hmm. that's an illegal satire whereas a legal satire is very much in the way that journalists you know, professional journalists now have to do. They have to check their sources. They have mm. to you know, start off by saying allegations have been made. <laughs> and then only once that's gone through a kind of a procedure of checking and verification, can they say this person has definitely done this terrible thing. They you know? <laughs> yeah, that's why I said, you know, professional journalists. So think of creating the satire as like an investigative journalist mm. having to get their story right having to go through recognised procedures mm. and verification that will then enable them to say without any fear of libel or slander they'll be able to say look this important person has done wrong they've broken this code they've broken this law and we need to hold them to account mm-hmm. you mentioned the Amateur poets, mm. the entertainers, yes. the poets of letter status. Yes. Can you tell us a bit more about those? Well, what's kind of interesting is that in our modern culture, we tend to think of poets as sort of a class of among artists and entertainers. Um, but in early Irish society, there was status really only for the poet and sort of the qualified and, poet. yeah for the qualified poet and by association a harpist mm-hmm. but if you were any other kind of entertainer then you were actually very very low status like along with beggars and buffoons mm. basically and that's probably where it comes down in medieval times yes to be poor and wandering poet yes well a kind of low grade farter which is one of the classes of entertainers <laughs> will will never be out of work quite <laughs> frankly <laughs> of course nowadays the part of the modern baggage that accompanies the word druid is mm. this druid magic yes uh, in a way i think this is something to do with the post-norman environment as much as anything isn't it um, to an extent, you know, that you there was a massive shift, the biggest shift probably in Irish uh, society was with the introduction of Norman law, Norman rule. That changed everything. It really did. And one of the things that it changed was the native aristocratic system, which was aristocratic, you know, the, the, it 
did depend on where you were born and who you were born to. But literally an entire uh, stratum of Irish society was either killed or exiled mm-hmm. um, and replaced with people who had very different ideas about mm-hmm. what society And who to believed be. in the pyramid structure rather than the stool structure. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, but that sort of goes alongside some changes in the European church as well mm-hmm. and within European religious orders. So what you get parallel to, if you like, Norman law being introduced is a splitting off between uh, ecclesiastical learning and study, Mm. which still uh, involved a lot of text-based learning and recording and also interest in law and and status and and so on. And to an extent history, although it was not history as we know it. Not as we would call it. And then a splitting off of the actual poetry. Mm. And that the poetry strand becomes the classical bardic schools, mm-hmm. which are essentially all they're doing is, is creating poetry, if mm. you like. They're not doing the other bits of study that would have been part of the filler mm-hmm. uh, in prior generations. But it also means that the uh, structures of patronage for the poetic schools was then gone. Mm. Uh, that it, they really, really struggled, particularly post-1601, mm. um, when the, the so-called Flight of the Earls happened. There was suddenly no native or very few native aristocrats with money to pay the poets. Mm. We did speak about this somewhat when we were looking at particularly the stories of Cormac, which we felt to be very much a kind of a post-Norman model of kingship where there was a lost appreciation for the importance of the role of the trained, qualified poet as counsellor to the king, that the king could do all of that himself, mm. that he and didn't, the poet was didn't no need needed. the poet. Yeah. But, you know, it's the same way that the Romans, including Caesar and Tacitus, did all they could in terms of propaganda to give the Druid poets an extremely bad press. <laughs> yes. And the damage they did to their reputation is still effective today. Yes. You know, I get so mad. <laughs> Years ago, when I was looking for books on Iron Age society to mm. give to primary school children, yeah. and you'd find you'd find shelves of Roman children go to the hyper course, Roman mm. children go shopping, anything yeah. you want. But you might occasionally find a book about Iron Age children. Mm. But you could guarantee that by page three, there'd be a druid in a white sheet wildly waving around some sort of sickle. <laughs> Well, the third and final question that we're going to address today Mm -hmm. could be titled, So, who are these Celts then anyway? (laughs) Well, a bit of a mystery. I mean, the word Celtic is bandied about in all kinds of different contexts, uh, even Celtic, where it refers to sports teams. Uh, But you'll find it applied to music, dance, art, dress, styles... All kinds of things, anything really that comes out of Wales, Scotland, Brittany, Brittany, Isle of Man, Cornwall, and especially anything, anything out of Ireland. It's named sports teams and yes. even the occasional illusionary economic uplift. Oh, God. Does anyone still remember the 
Celtic tiger. But the Celtic tiger was named after the Asian tiger, a famous property bubble which had already burst by the time they started calling the Irish economy a Celtic tiger. Yeah. I mean... Not remembered with great pleasure. No, no. Well, let's get back to our subject. Yes. Well, when we're talking, when we use the term Celtic in our podcasts, very often we're referring to a language group. Mm -hmm. And that is the group of languages. You have your P-Celts and you have your Q-Celts. Your Q-Celts are uh, Irish, Scottish and Manx languages, which use the, the word ken for head and has the qu sound like that. And then you have the P-Celtic languages, which are Welsh, Breton and Cornish. Mm-hmm. And they use pen for head. So that's where your P's and Q's. Mind your P's, Mind and, your P's Q's, and Q's. Yeah. Possibly. Um, <laughs> but those are sort of the two subdivisions within <coughs> modern Celtic languages. And then, of course, that goes back into the history of Celtic languages and proto-Celtic and how it relates to Indo-European. So there is a language group and it... it That's uh, definite and unequivocal. It is, um, but it doesn't necessarily relate to like a Celtic people or even the sort of art styles that are also Mm. kind of iconically Celtic. Let's look at it in more detail. I'll ask the question again. So (laughs) who, who were these Celts and how does Ireland come to be so identified as a Celtic country? I mean, there was certainly a late Bronze Age and Iron Age Celtic Empire. Yes. Now, it's traditionally called an empire because it stretched over a large area of mainland Europe, Mm. possibly most importantly centred in Central and Eastern Europe. But this continental civilization was never centred or founded or really existed at all within the islands of Ireland or Britain. And it wasn't anything like the usual concept of an empire either. No. I rather like Peter Berefus Ellis's description from his book The Celtic Empire, First Millennium of Celtic History, mm. 1000 BC to AD 51, long title, <laughs> yes. and written back in 2001. But that that's beside the yes, point. It's a good quote. <laughs> he says that European recorded history north of the Alps begins with the Celts. At their heights, it stretched over the ancient world from Turkey to Czechoslovakia, from Belgium and Gaul to Spain and Italy. Yet it was an empire without an emperor, a civilization that encompassed the continent, but had no central government. And I think that's the important bit. It was traditionally believed that there were waves of Celtic settlers or sometimes even invaders that had spread west all the way to Britain and into Ireland. Well, that's what empires are supposed to do, yes. isn't it? Like the Romans or the Normans or the British from the 18th century onwards, or slightly earlier, actually. Yeah, and indeed it's implied by the Irish Book of Invasions, although that English translation is somewhat biased. Leverig of all Erin is the Book of the Taking of Ireland, so not necessarily an actual invasion. And, of course, that book is post-Norman, just after the Normans had invaded Britain and then were setting their sights on Ireland. Yes, and that invasion, certainly of Britain and in, I think of Ireland too, was a conquest. It definitely was, there's no doubt about it. It was militaristic, it was a replacement, as we said, of mm. a, an entire ruling class by a different ruling class. Mm-hmm. They brought different law structures well, in totally particular. They totally replaced the arist- aristocracy in yes. England and they had a good job trying it in, in Ireland as well. Absolutely. Well, they did yeah. their best to try. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
And these waves of invading painted Celts and their sickle-waving bloodthirsty <laughs> druids? No. Now, that <laughs> never happened. That is just not true. You know, don't just take our word for it. Uh, if we look at Barry Rafferty, who is a professor of Celtic archaeology at University College Dublin, um, he, among many, many others, finds no archaeological evidence for a Celtic invasion of Ireland and this was when he was writing back in 2006. Yeah now I found a, con a conference report from that period and he said and I this is such a good quote so, such a it's so strong that I yeah. just had to quote it. Yeah. Over the period from about 450 BC to AD 450 when it's commonly agreed by scholars that there were Celtic societies and civilizations in Western and Central Europe, hardly any material evidence has ever been found here to substantiate the notion of Celtic Ireland. Mm. That's pretty strong. Yeah. And it goes on. There's no Celtic pottery or much pottery of any kind until well into the Christian period. Only 40 to 50 such swords or military instruments are extant, six decorated brooches, eight scabbards compared to the hundreds of thousands excavated in Western France alone. Mm. The patterns of burial, settlements and material culture show fundamental continuity with the earlier prehistoric periods which brought the original settlers here 9 to 11,000 years ago after the last Ice Age. And yet, by... AD 500, certainly, and probably earlier, the Gaelic language was spoken all over the island. It is undoubtedly a Celtic language and probably a distinctively archaic one. Now, I think that's interesting. It is. And just to clarify what he says at the end there about Irish as a Celtic language, the thing is that Irish, Welsh, Scots were designated as Celtic languages by 19th century philologists. Mm -hmm. and uh, Who were looking at the pre-named Celtic countries. Well, exactly. And they thought of the these Western tips of the European continent as Celtic because it was a, the layer underneath the classical and underneath then the, the Viking and Norman. So it was like a deeper layer of civilization that they thought of as Celtic that had been superseded by other things in the rest of Europe mm. but not here mm. and so because these islands were thought of as the Celtic islands then that meant the languages are called Celtic languages but then the people who were involved in this Celtic civilization all over Europe w didn't come over here mm. basically and so there's a that's some of the root of the confusion is that we talk about the Celtic languages, but that's a very late mm. descriptor. So you could sum it up that it's the familiar old idea of the coming of the Celts, is it to Britain or Ireland, mm. derived from classically focused mindsets laid down in the 18th and 19th centuries, yeah. when it was felt that all change developed from colonisation or even replacement. Absolutely, and uh, particularly after the Norman invasion of Ireland, the narrative of being invaded and replaced was very, very strong. Mm -hmm. And you find that repeated. And you find when we talk in other podcasts about the Levergavola Strand, we're very often talking about a reimagining of pre-Norman history mm. in the light of and an a very invasion. very different political and societal structure. Exactly. But also a, a society that has now been invaded but it has now been in a very 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 long time probably the first time since the beaker people <laughs>
the conference report that I quoted earlier was a few years ago, as we said, mm. but more recent DNA analysis supports those views. Yeah. Now, I was watching a brand new BBC4 documentary just the other evening. Mm. This was Sam Willis's new miniseries, Invasions. Mm. Now, he was maintaining, as we've just mentioned, that the last true invasion, where there was major replacement of indigenous peoples, took place in Britain and Ireland as far back as the arrival of the Beaker people, who were the first farmers. Mm. Now, this seems to have showed up clearly in the DNA records. Mm. He describes the Iron Age so-called Celtic invasions as a fashion invasion. <laughs> Basically, fashions and styles from Central Eastern Europe just appealed to people and they stuck. Yeah. But what he said was that this shows, and I really agree with this, was the, was the regular, widely travelled trading routes that existed. Oh, absolutely. And we are talking about a sort of a, a cultural appropriation, if you like, mm -hmm. and particularly of the art styles. The, mm -hmm. the, the, the uh, Hallstatt artistic styles were taken up by Irish craftspeople with absolute abandon. Mm -hmm. um, it really, it, 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 it obviously appealed hugely. Yes, and, you know, it just stuck. There were recent DNA tests done in Ireland to show just how inbred we are. Um, and But there was one subset of that study which was looking at Irish surnames that are down in the genealogies as being part of the email mm -hmm. sets. So in sort of legendary genealogy, they would all trace their um patrilineal heritage back to uh, Neil of the nine hostages mm -hmm. you nearly said sausages yeah I nearly said I always nearly say sausages nine hostages Neil and the Neil and that's what you find in the genealogical tracts which come from about the 10th 11th centuries these uh, genetic researchers track down people with these surnames which means it would have been passed down mm. through the male line and they looked specifically at Y-linked chromosomes so uh, characteristics that only pass through the male line and essentially people with those surnames now in the 21st century uh, share a common male ancestor from the second century mm. it can be traced back a long way yeah. here so the, so but then there's also that gap between the second century which is when this common male ancestor whatever he was called existed and the written genealogies of the 10th and 11th centuries are consistent that's very interesting. Yeah. So 800 years of oral history was kept, if you like, accurately. That is quite yeah. significant, isn't yes. it? Yes, yes. There's also the fact that while Southern Britain was ruled by a dominant Roman culture, it didn't much impact on Ireland and Northern Scotland. Well, not in the same manner. No, absolutely not. And there is a real difference in culture of all mm. kinds between Ireland, Scotland and then the, the rest of the mm. British Isles. And yeah, we were never ruled from Rome, basically. Now, that doesn't mean to say that there was no Roman influence. And in fact, you know, our early scholarship and our early indigenous texts are a testament to the literacy. Latin learning and literacy that was very highly prized mm. in our early universities which would be these poet schools at the schools of the Philip. there are plenty of latin borrowings oh there's plenty the Irish, of aren't there? oh absolutely i borrow from anywhere i mean we're, <laughs> we're total magpies there's one of um my old uh, 
uh, Irish professor Damien McManus one of his areas of specialty was about Latin loan words in mm-hmm. early Irish and in fact you can date when a Latin loan word is brought into Irish as to whether they have to change the P's into C's mm-hmm. or whether they can keep it as P so you have early stories of St. Patrick where he's called Cusriga mm-hmm. but then later stories of St. Patrick he's called Patrick Ah. Because they can pronounce the P again, <laughs> but they couldn't do it before a certain period. So you you can see at what point in the development of Irish a particular mm. Latin term mm. is is brought over. So which I love. <laughs> I think that's brilliant. Yeah. But the the disruption to the legal and social structure mm. had to wait for the Normans. Absolutely, yeah. I suppose you could sum up by saying when other areas of Europe moved on for one reason or another by choice or necessity. Uh, to other cultural styles and fashions, mm. they were retained in what are now regarded guarded as the Celtic countries. Yes, the, the fringes of Europe where, although there was plenty of trade and borrowing, of culture, of learning, of styles and fashions... It was the edge. People didn't pass through. No, no. <laughs> go on. We, we, we well, tended to... the Vikings, anyway. Yeah, we, we held on to the shiny things and we didn't really hold on to the people in the same way. <laughs> We kept on being inbred. Made a lot of shiny things too. Yeah. <laughs> now, in story archaeology recordings and articles, we tend to refer to the continental Celts, mm. the insular Celts, and the early Irish indigenous people mm. who adopted these fashions. Yes. Well, it's we kind of tend to say that because we know that there was never any Celtic invasion or mm-hmm. colonisation in Ireland. But it looks as though that's the same for a lot of Britain. Yeah, we may have to, you're right, we may have to stop saying insular Celts, but at least it's we're separating them off from the continental yes, Celts. Yes. And it is important because it goes without saying that there were huge differences in customs mm. between the continental Celts, the insular mm. or the people of Britain, yeah. and the indigenous Celtic lifestyle, yes. Irish. Yes. In fact, every region had individual customs. Yeah, and I think that there is a lot to be gained by examining those differences. I think it gives us a lot more richness. Well, this is this is where I'm going to do another of my rants because <laughs> one example that always annoys me mm. is the so-called cult of the head. Oh. Now, I know there's a reverence for the head as a seat of intelligence. Yeah. And Perhaps even the soul, though I find little evidence mm. for that. The spirit tends to be represented by the worm that causes change, including pregnancy and birth. And we've talked mm. about that often enough. Or by the birds that crosses from one realm to another and people change into birds and back again. And there, maybe that's a bit of evidence. You do have human-headed birds, mm. not just in Egypt. Yeah. We also have them representing the soul in the Imrava. Yeah. But there are so many frequently found simplistic assumptions <laughs> now here's just a random uh shall we say internet gleaning and i wouldn't <laughs> even dream of saying where it comes from <laughs> the ancient celts had re- a religious fascination with the human head celtic myths are full of severed heads according to the greeks and roman greek and roman historians celtic warriors took the heads of their enemies as trophies you see, there's a grain yeah. of something there, but the assumptions just simplify it all down to, oh, look at the Celts, the hairy Celts, and aren't they, aren't they fierce, and aren't they, oh, look at them all headhunting. And, and gruesome, yes. And it's not like that at all. No. Some of it might come from, there is a centre that I was thinking of, known as the sanctuary, if I can pronounce it right, of uh, Rock 
Rockpertus, something like that. I can never pronounce it. Pertus, that's Mm. it. Now, there, that's the one which has that famous uh, doorway with uh, niches with human skulls in it. Mm. It was discovered in 1860, which probably explains why it gained such romantic Mm. notoriety. Mm. And equally, when it was destroyed by the Romans in 124 BC. Mm. You can't get away from the fact that human skulls were displayed in niches there, but it doesn't imply headhunting was practised everywhere that adopted so-called Celtic culture. No, this is one site in the whole of, you know, European civilization. There are stone heads, (laughs) there are all sorts of Mm. things, and there is more evidence of some sort of head cult in Central Europe. Mm. There's no doubt of that. Mm. And anyway, the Romans would have been absolutely delighted to demonstrate a holier-than-thou stance when they destroyed the place. Mm. But it doesn't mean such sanctuaries, if it was a sanctuary, were ubiquitous any more than Caesar's description of the wicker man sacrifices you know chapter three of his Gallic Wars implies that there would have been regular structures set up in every village and hamlet of English England Wales and Ireland you know (laughs) waiting for the sickle um, wielding druids to arrive don't think our population could have supported that quite frankly those poets have much more interesting (laughs) and important things to do yes inside in the warm we also have to remember that Caesar wasn't writing history. He was writing tabloid, newspaper-style, sensational propaganda. Yeah. He had to win over the proletariat, the ordinary people, to stop himself getting arrested if he ever got round to going home. So, in other words, he had to demonise and bestialise the enemy. Yeah, and point out just how many people he'd managed to massacre yeah. in their, to their own good, of course. Yes. Yeah. You know, to, 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 so they could become Romans yes. after they were dead, I presume. Yeah. <laughs> was it something like a million in Gaul? It was It was really tremendous. I mean, for, It was a genocide. It, it was really huge. I'm, I'm not so up on my classical history. Well, Mary Beard talks mm. quite a lot about that as well. But mm. it's, uh, it's something that's always annoyed me. Mm. Mm. You know, the, ever the, since I was yeah. studying Latin at school, I, yes. I, I went, no. Why are we taking Caesar's word for it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, now, to be fair... We have been talking recently about the character of Colonel Carnach from the uh, Ulster Cycle, the, mm. the Tyne stories. And it's quite true that he is described as collecting a few heads along the way, including that wonderful one from Macdotho's pig, where one of his enemies says, oh, you wouldn't be acting like that if my brother was here. And Connell says, he is here, fling, and then drops the severed head of the brother into his lap, which is, you know, really (laughs) overdoing it. It is a bit hilarious. But I think that that is really... A specific characteristic of Cunnell. character. And I think that it is, you know, unusual enough and even to describe Cunnell. Childhood stories mm. about his um, uncle treading yes. on his neck. Absolutely. The yeah. head and neck yeah. are very carefully, uh, as it were, focused on yes. in his case. Yeah. I think he's a bit of a one off. Mm. But maybe it supports the argument that I was trying to make. Mm. The Latin style, which is one of the most famous Celtic art styles, mm. that it's curvilinear, it has plant and leaf mm. type shapes in it. Very familiar. Now, we were talking about influences coming over from mm. the continent, and it is noted that there's very, very little Latin influence found in Ireland. Mm. But what there is, can what, what, what can be identified, is really only found in Ulster, mm. where Connell's stories come from. Yeah, yeah. So it's curious. I think that we can't make too much out of if you like the connection between the art style and no, not really. Gaulish heads. But it does show that there were, even in Ireland, distinctive cultural 
styles mm. in the various mm. regions. And I'm not saying they were all sweetness and light. Oh no, and I mean they were a superstitious, bloodthirsty lot. Especially the Ulster. <laughs> But they <laughs> the have a wonderful very... sense of humour. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we, we do have that beheading game in uh, Brickroo's Feast, of course, which also relates to the time cycle. Mm. And, and there back are when we were discussing. possible stories on the continent. Exactly. Continent, uh, collected in the second century by Pausanias. Yes, which we discussed when we were yeah. looking at that uh, in discussing Brickroo's Feast. So, you know, there are comparative things that can be made between, you know, Irish stories archaeology and some of the continental stuff mm. what i was getting annoyed by yes. are these simplistic assumptions absolutely yes yes what's interesting as well though is that there are a lot of stories and characters that are really specific and indigenous to ireland mm. i mean most especially the dagda, favorites the dagda the Morrigan. They're very unique Eslu. to Ireland. Eslu, I think, is very mm. specific to Ireland as well. Even Oingus, you know, they they, uh, the the story of Moitura is not really comparable mm. to other sort of prior epics or story cycles from the continent i think this is why i love it so much mm. but there's no sign of headhunting there no. in fact when you get to the final battle confrontation it's described in terms of a deep compassionate sadness yeah. i've quoted this so many mm. times mm. but it is a beautiful piece mm. and the, the, the last bit of the battle mm. is described in this manner many beautiful men fell there in the stall of death Great was the slaughter and the grave lying that was there. Pride and shame were there side by side. There was anger and indignation. Abundant was the stream of blood there over the white skin of young warriors, mangled by hands of eager men while fleeing the danger. Mm. Now that you could be... this. Well, we're recording this on the, the... What is it? The 10th of the 11th. 2018 yes, yes when there's been a lot of talk of the last days of the Somme and the, yes and of the first world war absolutely. and that could be a description oh yeah from there yes yeah there's it's not that blase headhunting no it's, no it's very it is very real mm. experience of what fighting is actually like it's mm. not really romanticized i suppose no and although or, there's you know. it's very epic it's all there's an epic quality to the mm. battle of moitura mm. but there's also a realism yes yes or a naturalism I yes should say. yes i mean it's not only the stories which of course we focus on so much there are also demonstrable differences between ireland and britain and the continent uh, in the archaeological records so Really, one of the major ones is that there are, are no British-style hill forts in Ireland. Mm. There are different... I'm not an expert now, but it's different kinds of construction mm. that were going on here than were going on in Britain. Mm. And I think there are what are termed Celtic-style fortifications mm -hmm. that they find on the island of Britain. And um, the finds and burials are also yes. different. Oh, hugely, yeah. We could go on talking about this and indeed the richness and individuality of the Irish stories indefinitely. Yes. Well, we usually do. <laughs> but I think what we're trying to demonstrate here is that there is no simple and uniform Celtic culture, either in the past or now. Definitely not. <laughs> and there were definitely no waves of bloody Celtic invasions onto our island. I'll try and find a few articles or a short reading list uh, to link to this Q&A session. Yes. And 
see what I can find. But uh, next time we'll find a few more interesting questions because it's fun. You never quite know what's going to come no, up. No, absolutely. We certainly don't. Yeah, so hope you've enjoyed listening to this and keep those questions coming. Thank you and goodbye. Bye.